You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Gracious God, um, open our eyes, help us see Jesus in His glory, in His suffering, in His righteousness, and in His beauty. These things we ask and pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. It is bittersweet, isn't it, coming to the end of a series? We've spent the last eight weeks in Mark 9-11 to to answer that one key question. What king is this? And can I tell you, I mean, we all might have slightly different takes on it, but for me, the one phrase that really stands out the most is this. There's more than meets the eye. I mean, isn't that what we've seen over the last eight weeks, time and time again, as Jesus has been journeying to Jerusalem? That Jesus is a countercultural, expectation-defying, and what one preacher has called an upside-down king. Let's recap it. In chapter 9 at his transfiguration, we see that Jesus is glorious, but in his suffering. Then, in raising the demon-possessed boy, we glimpse a picture of Jesus' own death, that he is powerful in his death. Well, we then came to the second passion prediction, where Jesus shows himself to be a king, not, not for the first and the greatest, but for the least and the lowly. The surprises just keep coming. Chapter 10, Jesus protects not the strong and the powerful, but the weak and the powerless. And then in the second half of chapter 10, Jesus challenges our materialism and greed and shows himself to be a king, not for the rich and wealthy, but for the poor and needy. For people who have nothing else to trust in other than God himself. But we then hit the third passion prediction where Jesus' kingship is shown in his service, suffering and sacrifice, three words we don't naturally put with a king. And last week, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, we praised him, didn't we? Not just as a strong and victorious king, but a humble king, a gentle king, an afflicted king. And today, it's almost as as if Jesus had been journeying to Jerusalem for this one moment. He, He enters the temple, and this is what he does. He sets the stage for the last third of this gospel. The last third of this gospel, which we'll come back to in two years from now. And here's a fascinating thing. This last third of the gospel all takes place in Jerusalem. It's as if everything in Mark's gospel has been leading up to this final movement. And today, we're going to see a trailer of what's going to play out over the next five chapters. A preview of what is to come. Well, we're going to see a picture of the kingdom that Jesus is tearing down and a picture of the kingdom that he's building up. You see, friends, this will be a kingdom for the forgiveness of the nations. A kingdom of forgiveness for the nations. But in order to paint that picture, he first paints a different picture. He paints the picture of a fig tree. Uh, Two years ago, uh, in times where we could travel, I was back in Malaysia, and as often happens in Malaysia, I suddenly felt really, really hungry. Have you ever had that moment before? No explainable reason. It's about sort of three o'clock in the afternoon, and suddenly you just get a hunger pain. You think, I just 
have to eat. But it's not I have to eat something or anything. It's that I have a very particular craving. And for those of you who know me well, you wouldn't be surprised. I had a really deep craving for my favorite fruit uh, called durian, right? And I could really smell the aroma, taste that creamy texture, feel that heatiness inside. So, so this is what I did. I, I traveled down to a place called SS2 where there's an entire marketplace full of durian. They've got absolutely everything, right? You go there, the smell just hits you, right? But when I arrived... I ran to the store, I quickly experienced a great disappointment because the man stood there and said to me, sorry boss, no more durian. I mean, no more durian? I traveled all the way here for that. You know, before I was hungry, now I'm angry. What kind of durian marketplace doesn't sell durian? It's like a fish and chip shop that doesn't sell fish. A bubble tea store that's run out of pearls, a hipster cafe with no quinoa. So, so you know, I stood there and I thought to myself, I will curse the store. May no one ever eat durian from you ever again. Okay, not, not quite. Look at what happens to Jesus in Mark 11. In verse 12, Jesus is hungry. I love that observation, right? It's just this wonderful throwaway observation about how human Jesus really is. And just like me, Jesus has great expectations, right? Look at verse 13. He sees not a durian market, but a fig tree, and he goes to find out if there's anything on it. We all feel that sense of hope, don't we? That sense of expectation. Oh, maybe, just maybe it's there. And then from a distance, he sees the tree. It's in full leaf, and he goes, wow, yes, surely it's got to be there. But then he walks up. He takes a closer look. And great expectation gives way to great disappointment. Because when Jesus comes closer, he finds nothing but leaves. It's like that moment, right? That terrible, terrible moment where you would cleave open a durian and find no fruit inside. There's nothing but an empty shell. Now, you might read this and go, it's a bit weird. I mean, why is Jesus surprised? It's not the season for figs, right? So why blame the fig? Poor fig tree. I mean, like, it's not his fault. But in that culture and climate, fig trees, they, they produce baby fruit just ahead of summer, that moment where they're not quite ripe and in full leaf. And, and in that culture, those baby figs were a real delicacy. It's like that moment you go to a high-end restaurant and they charge you twice as much for broccolini or cherry tomatoes, right? They're just so much smaller, but they charge you so much more. And these, that, that's what Jesus is looking for, these baby figs, which you could expect to find on the trees at that time. But find them, he cannot. See, this is a tree that looks healthy from a distance, but it is fruitless in reality. It is full of leaves, but devoid of fruit. For a hungry person, it promises everything, but it delivers nothing. And so, in verse 14, we see Jesus do something really strange, don't we? He curses that tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you ever again. I mean, bad temper, bad mood, wrong side of the bed. I know some of you here love uh, collecting pot plants in your homes or planting trees. Can you just imagine for a moment, right? You buy a fruit tree, you plant it in your new garden, 
I mean, how soon he's probably done this with like mushrooms and other trees in his back? And he goes to his garden, looks there, it's like, yes, it's right there. I'm going to get the fruit, and there's no fruit. There's just a bunch of leaves. And then how, in a, in a moment of uncontrollable rage, says, stupid tree, right? Like, why would, why would he do that, right? This verse literally reads, though, never again. Never again into the age. Never again into eternity. From you may anyone eat fruit. Notice, Jesus' emphasis is not on the no one, it's on the never. You see, when Mark writes that it's not the season for feast, he uses a word that describes something much more than just a period of time. No, the word kairos means something so much more. It's the same word that Jesus uses in chapter 1 to describe the time or or the age of the kingdom. He's signaling that the age of God's kingdom has finally arrived. So in cursing the fig tree, he's telling it, your kairos is up. Your lifespan is at an end. No one will eat fruit from you ever again. The time of the fig tree is over and its leaves are leaving this age. You see, in verses 12 to 14, we see a tree without fruit. And now in verses 15 to 19, we see a temple without prayer. A temple without prayer. It's strange, isn't it? I mean, surely a temple or a church is the one place where you'd expect to find prayer. Here at Cross and Crown, no, everywhere, prayer is the way that we speak to God. It's the means by which we come before God and find forgiveness in Him. So, where else would you expect to find prayer? More than in God's own house. Uh, Just think about our church for a moment. In today's service, we will pray at least four times, maybe more. And two of those prayers which Zach led are extended, thoughtful, and deeply biblical prayers, both for our church and for our world. But just imagine being part of a church that isn't deep in prayer. I hate to say that, it might not be so hard to imagine sometimes. But a church that does not pray is like a gym where no one exercises, a school where no one studies, or a restaurant where no one eats. A church that does not pray is like a sun that does not shine, a a man who does not breathe, or a tree that does not bear fruit. You see, the church, right, is the one place where you'd most expect to find prayer. And in first century Israel, the one place where you'd most expect to find prayer is the temple. But what we find in these verses is a temple without prayer. And guess what? If you thought Jesus was angry before at the fig tree, look at his white, hot rage against the temple. In verse 15, Jesus enters the temple court, the one place where non-Jews like you and me were permitted to enter and pray. And then suddenly, I don't know what your mental image of this is, Jesus begins to trash the joint. Just picture it for a moment. There he is, literally just flipping tables and chucking chairs, right? He even gets physical. He blocks the entrance, grabs people by the scruff of their necks and throws them out of the temple court. It's not exactly our standard picture of Jesus, is it? Nor is this a license to do any of this here. But notice, I want you to see, he's not just trashing anything and everything. He's not just having a bad hair day and uncontrolled rage. He's specifically targeting the corruption of the temple. The people buying and selling. The tables of the money changers. The chairs of those selling doves. 
and the people who are presumably buying sacrifices from those traders. No, no, Jesus is angry. He is angry at the corruption of his father's house. This is not Jesus unhinged. This is not an arbitrary flash of anger or moment of uncontrolled rage. No, no, that word throw out in verse 15. It's the very same word that Mark uses to describe Jesus casting out a demon. So just think about it, right? The original audience, they would see Jesus throwing people out of the temple and they would immediately remember Malachi's prophecy from 400 years ago. That one day, the Messiah would come and purify his temple like a refiner's fire. But, but notice here, Jesus is doing something far more than, and far greater than just purifying the temple. No, he's tearing it down root and branch. What, what have you been reading in your Bible devotionally this year? Have you been doing one of those uh, 365 day through the Bible in one time programs? There's the Robert Murray McChain's program which goes through the New Testament twice, the Psalms twice and the Old Testament once in a year. I have to admit I'm pretty bad with Bible reading plans because I'm a slow reader. I get stuck. And I'm actually on my third read through Isaiah and it's kind of taken me a year and a half. Can I tell you when I read Isaiah though, it's absolutely breathtaking. It's this beautiful picture of the future. And it's that vision that Jesus picks up on in Mark 11:17. So if you were a Gentile, as I'm guessing, I think all of us are, but foreigners in ancient Israel, you, you would have been excluded from entering the temple of God. You, you wouldn't have been allowed to go in there. There would have been a big sign that says Gentiles excluded. But, but now look at what Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 56. As for the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to become His servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold firmly to my covenant, here it is, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar and my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Can you see what Isaiah is promising here? One day, God's temple, it won't just be for the nation of Israel. It will be for the nations of the world. That no matter who you are, or where you're from, or how far you might feel from this God, you can come to His temple. You can pray to this God. And you can find forgiveness in Him. That's what the temple was always intended to be. A place of forgiveness, a place of prayer, a place of salvation for the nations of the world. People from Australia, from Korea, from the Philippines, from Vietnam, from China, from Taiwan, Malaysia, Singapore, Norway, Sri Lanka, India, Thailand, Cambodia, even New Zealand. You see, no matter where you come from, no matter where you might call home, you can come to this temple. You can pray to this God. You can find forgiveness in Him. It is this absolutely mind-blowing vision of the future. A house of prayer for every nation. A place of forgiveness for all peoples. 
if only. If only that's what it was. Let's look at what it's become. Instead of a house of prayer, no, the temple has become a den of thieves. I'm moving on from Isaiah. I'm about to hit Jeremiah. And can I tell you, if Isaiah paints this glorious picture of Israel's future, Jeremiah paints a bleak picture of Israel's sin. In Jeremiah 7, Israel has misplaced its trust in the temple. They think that just because they have the temple, they're somehow able to live however they want. So they steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods. And all the while, they say, no, 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 this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. We are rescued so we can continue doing all these detestable acts. And you think, did they really say that? That is remarkably honest, isn't it? You see, for them, that the temple is a source of unlimited forgiveness, a source of unlimited protection, And so it becomes a source of unlimited license to sin. We've got the temple, so we can live however we want. And Jeremiah comes along and he calls them out. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers in your view? You see, the Israelites, they're behaving like those Christians, right? Who go to church each Sunday. Who go to church every Sunday even and think that our church going somehow allows us to live however we want during the week. We who misplace our trust in church and use it as spiritual cover for our sin. Fast forward now 500 years, and Israel is in exactly the same situation. Look at what they're doing. They're they're misplacing their trust in the temple. They're using it as spiritual cover for their sin. From a distance, the commercial activity of the temple looks busy, healthy and even vibrant. Thousands upon thousands of pilgrims are coming to the temple and buying sacrifices to offer to the Lord. But when we take a closer look, what do we see? Nothing but dead religion. That the sellers and money changers are ripping off the very Gentiles that they should be bringing in. They're extorting the very foreigners that they should be embracing. And here's the worst part of it all. The chief priest is personally profiting off this trade at their expense. This is a case of unjust enrichment, pure and simple. You see, instead of reaching the nations to bring them in, no, they're ripping them off to keep them out. They're preventing the nations from approaching the temple. They're preventing the nations from praying to God. Do you realize that when we deprive people of prayer, we deprive them of forgiveness? Because prayer is a means by which we approach the God who alone has the power to forgive. A church without prayer is a church without forgiveness. Prayer is one of the chief benefits of the gospel. Jesus died so that we might come to His temple. Jesus died so that we might approach the Lord. Jesus died so that we might pray. My gosh, do we think about prayer like that. But it's tragic, isn't it? The one place of prayer that is meant to embrace the nations is instead extorting them. 
And sadly, we don't have to think too hard, do we, that there are churches just like this temple. Churches that will preach a false gospel of health, wealth and prosperity, flashy from a distance, but when you take a closer look, they are ripping off the vulnerable and profiting off the weak. Jesus regards those churches just as he regards the temple, like a tree without fruit. And he condemns those churches just as he condemns this temple as a tree without roots. Here's a tip. Come Christmas time, if we have Kris Kringle or Bad Santa or anything like that, don't buy me a pot plant. Some years ago, I was given a pot plant as a gift. And I hate to say it, I, I kind of neglected that plant, right? Like, in fact, I, okay, I'll be honest, I pretty much forgot that it existed. Uh, until one day, I noticed the plant in the corner of my garden. And can I tell you, its leaves were withered, its branches dry, its soil barren. But you know what? I thought, I'm a naturally optimistic guy. Okay, some of you might not believe that, but I am, right? Like, and I thought to myself, surely, no, 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 this is salvageable. If I just water it now, every day, I'll just water torture it, right? There's still hope. There's still hope. I can give this new life. So I, I, I gently went to the plant, picked it up, and suddenly the pot just fell out from under it. And the entire plant, roots and all, just lifted out. And in my hands was effectively a bunch of sticks, dried to the root, dead to the core. It's got hope, right? Like, well, in verse 20, Jesus and his disciples, they, they, they walk by that very same fig tree that Jesus cursed just the day before. And now it's not just a tree without fruit. No, just like my very sad pot plant, it is withered from the roots up. It's cursed. It's dead to the core. See, if we zoom out and look at this stru- the structure of this passage, I wonder if you can see what Mark is doing, right? In verses 12 to 14, he paints the picture of a tree without fruit. A a tree that Jesus curses as being good for nothing. Jump down in verses 20 to 25, we see the picture of a tree without roots. That very same tree is now cursed and dead to the core. And sandwiched right in the middle is verses 15 to 19, a temple without prayer. A temple that Jesus condemns as good for nothing. A temple that is cursed and dead to the core. Reverends, can you see what Mark is doing here? He's using the fig tree as a picture of the temple. The fig tree is a picture of the old covenant means of coming to the temple, praying to God and finding forgiveness in Him. And just like that fig tree, the temple, it has many leaves, It looks great on the outside, but when you walk up more closely, you see that it has no fruit. It looks like a house of prayer from a distance, but it is a den of thieves in reality. And so, when Jesus says in verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, he's not just cursing the fig tree, no, he's cursing the temple. May no one pray from you ever again. The age of the fig tree is over. The age of the temple is gone. Just like that fig tree was withered from the roots up, the temple is now dead to the core. You, know, you see, Jesus, he's not just purifying the temple, he's not just pruning a dead plant like I may have tried to. No, he's tearing it down root and branch. And that's why he then says, 
Don't have faith in the temple. Have faith in God. You see, remember in Jeremiah, the people, they were misplacing their faith, their trust in the temple. They, they trusted the temple as a license to sin. And here in Mark's Gospel, the Israelites are doing it all over again. They have faith in the temple as an outward sign of closeness to God. But in reality, they could not be further from Him. So, so Jesus says, don't have faith in the temple. No, put your faith in God. Put your faith in me. If the temple is a place where God dwells, don't put your faith in the place. Put your faith in the person. Your prayers are powerful not because of where you pray. No, they are powerful because of the one to whom you pray. They are powerful through your faith in the God who can answer every prayer. That's what Jesus means in verses 23 to 24. Everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Just love that verse taken out of context, don't you, right? It's not a magic formula. It's not a name it and claim it guarantee that if only I have enough faith, then I can get whatever I want. No, the power of our prayer lies not in the place, not in our words, and not even in our faith, as if our faith had some intrinsic value. No, the power of our prayer lies in the God in whom we trust the God in whom we have faith. So we swing around to verse 23. Verse 23, it's not saying that we're somehow powerful enough to move a mountain. I'm not going to go in front of a mountain this Sunday or, or next week or tomorrow and stand in front of it and just try and just move it like that. It doesn't work that way. It's saying that God is powerful enough to move a mountain. And isn't it so true that the greatest mountain to move is often the mountain of our own sin. In fact, the greatest miracle mentioned in these verses is not the lifting up of a mountain and throwing it into the sea. Now that's easy. Now in verse 25, the greatest miracle is that God himself might forgive our sins. We live in a pretty brutal and unforgiving age, don't we? I was reading a book recently um, called Being the Bad Guys by Steve McAlpine and I'd really recommend it to you about how we as Christians live in this culture as the new cultural minority and how we might embrace that outsider status but live it well to the glory of God. And in it he tells the story of his friend who works and, and runs workshops in high schools all across the country. And this friend told Steve that today there are three big questions consistently asked by young people. Three big questions. Can you guess what they are? Lack of meaning and purpose, loss of identity, and the risk of never being forgiven. That's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, the first two were kind of, you could guess that, right? But the last one, the risk of never being forgiven as one of the greatest issues confronting young people today. But think about it. Our age is an age where a Facebook post from 15 years ago can destroy an entire career. Where sins are never forgiven and never forgotten. This is an age where if you say the wrong thing or maybe don't even support the right cause, you are cancelled from culture forever. No, it's a pretty brutal and unforgiving age. 
And the truth is, I'm convinced that many of us Christians live as if God has not forgiven us. We live each day on the assumption that God has not forgiven, could not forgive, and will never forgive the sins of our past. You know the sins I'm talking about, don't you? The sins so dark, so shameful, and so scarring. The sins that we just want to forget. The sins for which we cannot forgive ourselves. And we think, well, if I can't forgive myself, then you know what? There's no way that God could forgive me. So many of us believers live as if we had never been forgiven. But Jesus says, pray in faith for forgiveness from me. See, your sins might be as great as that mountain, but just as God can lift up a, lift up a mountain and throw it into the sea, so too He can take up your sin and nail it to a cross. And that's exactly what he did. He dismantled the temple as the place where the nations pray, the place where they offer sacrifices and find forgiveness. And instead, he offered himself as a sacrifice so that the nations might pray and find forgiveness not in a temple, but in him. Let me be very clear. You don't need to go anywhere or to anyone else. If you want forgiveness, you need only go to Jesus. The cross of Christ is the one place where you can find forgiveness full and free. You need only have faith in Him. And friends, if we've been so forgiven by God, how then can we not forgive others? Can you think of someone who has hurt you whom you have simply not forgiven. Why not forgive them today? Forgive them in faith that God has forgiven you. You see, friends, in Jesus, God has made us, the church, this family, look around right now, this group of people, His new temple. And He calls us to be a house of prayer for all nations. A place where people from every nation can find forgiveness full and free. And that's why, can I tell you right now, I, I can't wait till we plant our next church. It's not happening tomorrow. It's not happening next year. But Lord willing, wouldn't it be amazing if we could plant a new church to reach a new group of people? Because new churches reach new people, new tribes and new nations. Just think about it for a moment. That we might plant a church to reach another tribe with a gospel that through that church plan, another nation or tribe might come, might pray, and might be forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it's risky, but can I tell you, it's worth it. Because that is why we exist as the people of God, to extend that gospel of forgiveness to the nations of this world. In Mark 9-11, to we have seen what kind of king Jesus really is. And as we've seen what kind of king he really is, we've also seen what kind of kingdom we must be. God is calling us to be a kingdom that is glorious in our suffering. To be a kingdom that is powerful in our dying to self. To be a kingdom that welcomes the least and the lowly. 
To be a kingdom that protects the weak and the powerless. To be a kingdom that values the poor and the needy. To be a kingdom that serves, suffers and sacrifices. To be a kingdom that is victorious and our humility, gentleness and affliction. And to be a house of prayer for the forgiveness of every nation. Brothers and sisters, will we be that kingdom? Will we be that church? Will we be like Jesus? God's suffering King. Let me pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we praise You. We praise You that You are a King. The King. The King above every King who has the name above every name. And so we ask, God, that as we behold the Lord Jesus Christ in His glory, we might be like Him in His suffering. Not to us, Lord, but for the salvation of many nations, for the forgiveness of many peoples, and for the glory of God, we ask and pray that the nations might be glad and rejoice, for salvation belongs to our God. Amen.